Hi, this is Pursuing Justice. My name is Harriet Hendel. Welcome back to my listeners. Um, I hope that during this very difficult time that more of you are tuning in to listen to your favorite podcasts and I hope that we are one of them. We are part of the Radio Ear Network family on Society Bites Radio. And this podcast focuses on wrongful conviction for the most part. But uh, once in a while, we take a side path and we talk about other things that are connected to either the Innocence Project of Florida, where I was a board member for six years, or we talk about uh, different actual cases of wrongful conviction, um, and we've interviewed exonerees who have spent as much as 30 years in prison and are now out. But today, um, we have a guest who was with us last time, and she had agreed to come back. Um, her name is Janet Hygens, and she is the author of three books on wrongful conviction. The first book is called Wrongful Conviction, came out in 2015. And the next one following is Snook Wallow. And the third book is Casperson Beach. And she is at work on her fourth book. And maybe we can get a little sneak peek as to what that book will be about. So we were talking last time about some of the major contributing factors of wrongful conviction. Um, and maybe what we should do for our listeners, just in case they missed our last broadcast, is just to highlight some of those, because I think that um, too often we are not aware of how many factors go into someone ending up in prison who was uh, innocent. So maybe, Janet, um, we can go back and just highlight some of the ones we were talking about last time, if you would. Of course, Harriet. And, and thank you again for having me. Um, this is a subject that's very close to my heart, as you might guess. Um, and I applaud you and the entire wrong, uh, the entire Innocence Project organization for all the good work that they've done. Must sometimes seem an impossible task, but the successes are there, and um, and and so so honored to be here to join you today. That's great, thank you. Now, um, as to common reasons for wrongful convictions, the the number one reason at the moment is eyewitness error, and just briefly, this would cover the misidentification of a suspect by a witness who really is convinced that they saw an individual that they pick out of a lineup or out of a uh, police photo lineup. And once they do that, the image generally stays in their mind and it's, it's virtually impossible to get them to go back and, and recant or to change their, their opinion. So that's, that's the number one reason. There are other categories, government misconduct, mishandled or suppressed evidence, um, junk science, science that is really not um, true proof of a person's innocence or guilt, but, but jurors can be swayed. And, um, and we talked about snitch testimony, mm -hmm. where somebody in prison is offered a deal 
to essentially lie about a, a confession that they heard or overheard in while they were sharing time in prison with a suspect. Right. Now, in addition to that, I, I would add racial bias. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very difficult to prove. It is undeniably real. And again, um, there's been a lot of investigation into this. Our local p- paper here, the Sarasota Herald Tribune, ran an extensive series on this subject not too long ago. And racial bias runs from the ground up, right up to top-level judges, uh, the prosecutors, the, the police forces. And sad to say, racial bias is usually against African-Americans. So um, I do touch on that in one of my, my books, actually the first book, where the wrongfully convicted uh, person is a black man living in a white world and convicted with an all-white jury, and uh, and turns out that he wasn't he wasn't guilty in any way. Yeah. Um, there's also an interesting one for me: false confession. Mm-hmm. I, I looked at this and I thought, how can that possibly be? If you're innocent, you're innocent. Nobody can move you from that position. However. Oftentimes, police will put so much pressure on a suspect, especially if they're young, most especially if they're young, and they will just sweat somebody out for hours and hours and hours and push, push, push until the person just gives up. They break. They do. And again, a very well-documented technique and very difficult to challenge. So false confession is something that I'm incorporating in my fourth book mm. because, because I have a young um, suspect, if you will, who's been convicted wrongfully. And it's just, um, it's just a terrible thing. But it, it's more common than you might think. The police, their job is to bring somebody to justice. And they often do it whatever way they can. And this is one of the techniques that works for them. And, um, and it's not that uncommon. No, it's not. And, and uh, the, on uh, Netflix, I believe it's still on, uh, there was a series last year, and I think it um, then became uh, part two of the series. It was called The Confession Tapes. Uh-huh. And this was um, amazing because the woman that, did the series, I was in touch with her and I was going to bring her to Sarasota to speak um, to the public about just this thing, this Mm -hmm. uh, concept of confessing when you're not guilty. Mm -hmm. And it it just didn't work out, unfortunately. But um, she was able to get real tapes because in in many cases, not all cases, uh, the um, interrogation is recorded, mm-hmm. and and you could watch what was happening uh, in these cases. It was very very frightening to watch the, the technique of breaking someone down until they got a confession. Uh, mm-hmm. Very very frightening. So yeah, that is um, a new, relatively new factor. It's not new. Uh, 
to, I think, uh, people who work in, in the field. But I, I think it is now has now become a category of its own. Um, yeah. Very, well, very fortunately, fortunately, more and more the police departments are their conscience, consciousness of wrongful conviction has been raised, partly because of the exposure that it's had. And fortunately, there is more recording of interaction with police mm -hmm. and, and the suspect. And that can be used to help in a defense. But um, right. yeah, and actually, I'm also heartened to know and to learn that more and more police departments are establishing teams, well, not police departments, but the, um, the, the legal departments, they're establishing teams that will investigate old cases where there is a suspicion that somebody has been wrongfully convicted. And right. it's, that, is gaining, that is gaining as well, which is a wonderful thing, it truly yeah. is. Now, there are a couple, just a few others. I mean, there are just a few others that hit the, the top 10, if you will. Prosecutorial mm -hmm. misconduct uh, and um, inadequate legal representation. Right. I have to remember that a lot of times people that are um, wrongly accused don't have the funds or the, or the information or the education to um, defend themselves. And the prosecutors do have lots of resources at their disposal. Not everybody can be O.J. Simpson and hire the dream team. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes prosecutors will cross the line and the defense isn't adequate to, um, to, to call that into question. So that is at inadequate legal representation is there. There's no question. Yes. Yeah, and I also wanted to go back to something that you said uh, the last time about prosecutorial um, misconduct, that mm -hmm. one of the uh, things that they should be doing by law is turning over all evidence that they have right. to the defense. And there is, a, there is a Supreme Court ruling from way back in the 60s called the Brady Ruling, Yes. which it, it, in a sense forces them to do that and right. they do not always do it even though it is written in stone right. and that that's uh, that's very very uh, sad because if evidence is hidden and it could exonerate someone or they wouldn't go to prison in the first place um, that certainly should be on the table and uh, we we find, that decades later, there was indeed clear evidence. There's so many cases. Uh, I, I'm seeing a great deal uh, in my reading of prosecutorial misconduct, particularly uh, in the area of hiding or not um, coming forth with, with all the evidence. Exactly. So that's, that's very disturbing. And then there was something else that we talked about, uh, junk science. Um, another thing that I've been reading a great deal about is blood spatter uh, mm -hmm. technology, or it's not really technology, blood spatter analysis. And yeah. that has come under the heading of junk science. So there, there are some self-styled experts, and that's, I put that in quotations, mm -hmm. uh, that feel they have um, a, a great deal of validity in this blood spatter analysis. And it has proven not to be so. Uh, so, you know, these are all 
very, very key factors in sending somebody to prison uh, who was really, you know, innocent, shouldn't be sent there in the first place. Sure. Now, you, you mentioned um, your newest book. Um, how far are you in, in terms of finishing uh, <laughs> or are you just starting? <laughs> I don't know. I, I oh, don't okay. know. You know, I'm the sort of writer. I keep lots of notes. I have lots of ideas. When I find something interesting in my research, I put it in my file and think, yes, I must incorporate this. And, and then I sit down and write. And I, I hand to heart, I don't know who did it. <laughs> you know? and, and I don't know where it's going exactly um and so I don't really know how far away I am from the end of this one oh, I all I can tell you is that I'm on I think I'm on chapter 15 and that might be that might be a third of the way through I don't know right. in the meantime my third book in the series is just being launched I I oh. have a uh, I've received a sign off from my publisher publisher the manuscript is complete edited they're working on cover design and hopefully that one will will hit the shelves in the not too distant future so I'm always working behind you know I'm working on book four and book three is just about to, mm -hmm. to see the light of day so oh, that's always always yeah. fun yeah no it's it's th nearly there <laughs> but uh -huh. it's not quite how, right. how much time does it take would you say to complete uh, one book or are they all, all different? Um, on average, it takes me about uh, two years to write a book. Oh. And it takes the publisher another year to do their magic and bring it, edit. Bring it out. Mm -hmm. They edit. They edit. It goes through several series of edits. Mm -hmm. um, generally, there's some significant rewrite that's involved with that. So they'll do a first pass and then send it back to me. And I have to change things. Um, in the one that's about to come out, the title of that one is called Casperson Beach. And the editor came back to me after sitting on it for, or working on it, I should say, for a while and said, you know, it's too obvious to me that the person that you're trying to, uh, to, to suggest is guilty in this murder uh, it's too obvious to me that that person's not guilty and you need at least one other suspect to detract attention, you know, another red herring, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I had to go back and create another whole character in the book, oh, <laughs> which was fun. Uh, that's tough. When you <laughs> no, didn't have the character fun. to start with. Yeah. It was fun. And, uh -huh. but, but boy, that was great advice because it absolutely was true. It was, it was too obvious, you know, and so I had to create, uh, another person to cast doubt on the on the whole thing. Um, now, do you yeah. find the, that your your suggestions coming from your editor are valid? Oh, most certainly, yes, they they really are. In the first book, <laughs> there was a scene where the protagonist, you know, she barges in and somebody's got a gun and she somehow manages, you know, to escape that situation and the editor came back and said this protagonist is too dumb to live I you know <laughs> I don't even care about her anymore the minute that, that happened why did she barge into this as a situation where she knew darn well it was going to be too too dangerous so 
So again, rewrite. But you know, yes, the advice. You know, there. I'm in the hands of some very capable editors and and uh, and cover designers and so on and so forth. So that's that's their that's their business. I just write the stories. Right. Well, that's great that um, you have a great deal of respect for the editor and that their suggestions are good ones uh, mm -hmm. that they improve the book. Yes. Uh, and and that's uh, to your advantage. Um, do you enjoy reading other kinds of books, other genres, when you are writing a book, or do you avoid reading other things and just focus on the book at hand that you're trying to write? Oh, that is such a great question. Um, uh, that is a wonderful <laughs> question, Harriet. Oddly, maybe, I prefer to read literature, not mystery fiction. Um, and so what happens to me is if I'm reading something and like, for example, the one I just finished is called Educated by Tara Westover. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure I would put that in the category of high literature, but it was a very nice, it was a great book and I enjoyed it but it's not a mystery. It's a nonfiction mm -hmm. memoir. Mm -hmm. and, um, and when I got into a workshop with my writer people and submitted something for them to look at with my current project, they said, what has happened to your voice? You know, this is, this is, what are you reading right now? Because this is really messing you up. <laughs> mm. <laughs> You've got to put that down. So I try to separate uh, my mystery reading for fun, if you will, from my preferred reading list. Um, and so, yes, one will interfere with the other. I have to remain true to the voice of my characters. I'll tell you, there are some mystery writers that I highly respect. One of them is Paul Levine, uh, who's partially retired now. He's a Florida guy who's relocated to California. Another one is Michael Connolly, a great mystery writer. He writes the Bosch series of books. And now I think Netflix is running a series based on his books. So I love reading them when they're done well. But my preferred, my preferred reading is not necessarily mystery novels. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you have a, a favorite um, author right now or favorite book that you're reading at the moment? Ah, well, you know, right before Educated, I, I just finished um, American Dirt by Jeannie Cummings, I think was the author. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that is a novel. That it's, it's not nonfiction. Again, a, a very, very good book. There was, um, oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I read whatever, whatever hits the New York Times bestsellers list mm -hmm. or, get, or wins a Pulitzer Prize. Those are my sort of tried Thanks. and true faves, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's now, great. You, you had mentioned to me that you incorporate social issues into your books. Why yes. is that important to you? Well, if I have a voice, which I do, you know, I'm not a best-selling novelist, but I think, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a voice that, you know, reaches people that I might not otherwise reach. And so I would be really wrong not to incorporate so social issues that are near and dear to me. So in the first book that I wrote, In Wrongful Conviction, racial bias, um, which is a reason for wrongful conviction, but even you know, in our everyday lives, racial, racial bias 
exist. And it, you know, it makes me crazy. It truly makes me crazy. I've got a few friends who are writers who are also happen to be African-Americans. And I, I'm just appalled by the life they have to read, the things they have had to say to their children as they grew up, that being white and living in really a, a you know, charmed existence, I never had to even think about it. So racial bias is is a subject that I hope I brought, I hope I shed some light on that in my first book. In the second book, human trafficking is, um, is first and foremost, there is too much of it. It is definitely taking advantage of people coming into the country who, for reasons of, um, you know, that we can't even imagine the situation these people are coming from to risk everything to come here, only to land here and be really taken advantage of. And in South Florida, where I live, it is something that is in front of all of us and yet nobody sees it really, especially I would say in, in, in my second book, I highlighted the tomato fields of Immokalee, Florida. Immokalee is only minutes away from some of the most wealthy parts of the Florida West Coast. And here people are really enslaved to the business of raising and, and harvesting tomatoes. And so that, you know, I, that's, that's the setting that I used for my second book. Um, book three, I am, I'm trying to keep my books straight now. Mm-hmm. In book three, yeah, in book three, illegal immigration. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's similar to human trafficking, except that, you know, they're, they're definitely distinctive. They're distinctively different. And also in book three, homelessness. Mm. And again, shockingly, I live in a wonderful, beautiful, affluent community. And yet homelessness is a a large and growing problem. And together with homelessness is there's a very strong uh, correlation with homelessness and mental health. So... Again, I've incorporated that. I've incorporated that. There's a character who is homeless and suffers from schizophrenia in and out of social shelters, um, just doesn't have a chance. Just doesn't have a chance. So, yeah. So those are those. That's my short list of social issues that are near and dear to me. Well, that's great because you raise awareness then not only about wrongful conviction and innocent people sitting behind bars, but some of these issues too that go hand in hand. And I I thank you for that because those are certainly near and dear to my heart as well, as you know. Yes. Well, um, I, I wanted before we, we close today to recommend something I just learned about that will be on Netflix. Um, it is a series, and I believe it's either called Innocence Cases or Innocence Files, and uh, I believe there will be nine cases of innocence, and the man doing the um, uh, the series has done um, 
death row stories. He, he's done a number of uh, documentaries uh, before. Um, he's, he's just terrific. So check Netflix for this. And also, I wanted to recommend uh, John Grisham's new book that I'm reading called The Guardians, also highlighting uh, cases of innocence uh, behind bars. So there are some things out there that are definitely worth uh, watching and reading. And uh, there's no no shortage of that. And your books certainly are part of it. And it was wonderful to have you as a guest today on the podcast, Janet. I well, thank you. It. Thank you so much, Harriet. And again, I can't say enough to you. Thank you for all the good work that you do with the Innocence Project of Florida. Well, thank you for the compliment. I appreciate that. So um, once again, I want to remind my listeners, if you have some thoughts on today's podcast or any other that we have done, please email me at pursuing.justice5 at gmail.com. And my next um, podcast, I will have a series um, with a woman from California named Amy Friedman, who has put together an after-school club for high school students in California, and she's trying to get it across the nation in as many schools as possible, uh, high schoolers that have a loved one behind bars, whether it's a parent, a sibling, or a relative. And it's a place for these kids to be able to uh, understand uh, each other, and there's no, uh, there's no need to hide um, that fact uh, in their lives. And I will have her, uh, Amy Friedman, who founded the, the club, it's called POPs, Pain of the Prison System, and some of her students in who are in the club. So that should be very, very interesting uh, next time. So thank you all for listening. Thank you again, Janet, for being with me today. And uh, I hope people will keep listening listening to Pursuing Justice, and stay safe and stay well.